So we're in Leviticus, and for those who are joining us for the first time, unfortunately in the last lesson I explained all the reasons why it's important for Christians to to study the book of Leviticus. So if you're just joining us now, you're going to have to take our word that we came up with a lot of good reasons for doing that. Okay. And uh, I'm, I'm, only, I'm only half kidding here, but uh, a lot, we mentioned before a lot of Christians... Uh, find the book of Leviticus hard to understand or not interesting or oh it's good or, or, or not relevant to their lives and we had uh, someone over for dinner last night that was talking about they like to read through the Bible but they hit the wall when they get to Leviticus I said well, you made it through the second half of, of Exodus with no problems and he said no I read a book on the uh, seeing Christ in the tabernacle, so I found that kind of interesting. But when I hit Leviticus, I hit the beginning of Leviticus, and it was it was all over. So this is this is this is a common uh, a common challenge for Christians. the 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 law of Moses was used. We talked about this last time. The law of Moses was used by the apostles quite a bit in explaining some extremely foundational and practical things, and even. We talked about even to letters that were clearly written to Gentile disciples, or mostly to Gentile disciples, like First and Second Corinthians and and First Peter. They're full of references to things in the Law of Moses. So the assumption was that the Gentile Christians had been taught in the in the in the church in the very beginning were taught the Law of Moses. That even though we don't have to follow the Law of Moses, even though we're not saved by the Law of Moses, there are significant things that are beneficial for us. Now, Paul said in quoting from the Old Testament, everything, in Romans 15, for everything in the past was written for our understanding, for our learning. This is all written, all these things are written for us. This is our book. And, um, you know, 2 Timothy uh, 3, it talks, it talks about how he told Timothy that from infancy that he knew the scriptures which are able to make us wise for salvation. And they are profitable, this is talking about the Old Testament, they're profitable for, for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we want to be thoroughly equipped, and God has given us this. I believe also we'll see that if you if you understand the book of Leviticus you're going to you're going to see a lot more things in the New Testament because there's so many things in the New Testament in the gospels and in the letters that draw on Leviticus and like in Hebrews especially but uh, all over the New Testament so let's let's uh, uh, take a look here now I, the, one of the questions I, I want to just just put this in a little bit of historical framework of when the book of Leviticus was written, what was going on. Uh, and we studied the Exodus about a year ago, I guess, now. We went through the Exodus, and the story of the Exodus starts with the, the, the Exodus journeys, the killing of the Passover lamb and crossing the Red Sea. It, about two months later, they end up at Mount Sinai, and then the Jews spend the rest of the year about ten months out Mount Sinai. What happens at Mount Sinai? Well, you have the Ten Commandments. Moses goes up on the mountain. You have the instructions about building the tabernacle, and the people actually build the tabernacle, and the tabernacle is dedicated. They, they set, upside, uh, set apart the priests for that. And then the last thing they do is they have a census of all the people, 
Numbers and uh, Numbers uh, chapter one, and so that's that's that period of time, about ten months that they're camped out at Mount Sinai, is when God gives the Jews the specific instructions about the sacrificial system and everything else. So that's that's what the Book of Leviticus is, and then the rest of the journey. The rest of the 40 years in the, in the wilderness, they, they go up about six months to travel to Kadesh Barnea. They send out the 12 spies, and then they get they have to spend the rest of the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and that's in the book of, that's the book of Numbers. And then at the end, before Moses dies at Mount Nebo, he gives parting warnings and retelling the story, and that's the book of Deuteronomy. So that's, that's how, kind of how the... How the the uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all fit together. So Leviticus is instructions that were given while the people were camped at Mount Sinai during that, that 10 months. All right. Uh, so they're given the instructions about building the tabernacle and the priests, and Leviticus starts off by going into more details about the whole sacrificial system and the temple worship and other specific laws that the people were given. Now, the law of Moses, most people think, well, you think, what does the New Testament say about the law of Moses? They'll immediately jump to Paul's writings and they'll say, oh, the law of Moses is it's, it's, it's bad, it's terrible. They had problems with the law of Moses. People are trying to say, you have to take Christ and then you also have to add the law of Moses and circumcision to it. And so there's a lot of the New Testament letters are addressing that problem. But let's back up and ask the question, how? What did Jesus have to say about the law of Moses? Did he think this was a bad thing or a terrible thing or this tremendous impossible burden that that it's, it, all these picky laws that nobody could possibly follow? Is that how Jesus saw the law of Moses? And I want to to take a look at Matthew twenty three. To, to see what Jesus had to say about the law of Moses. Now, Matthew 23, Jesus rebuking the religious leaders who were hypocrites. Matthew 23, verse 13. So I want to say, what's Jesus' attitude about the law of Moses? But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves." Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obligated to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that's on it, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin 
and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. So what's the problem that Jesus has in what we just read in the rest of chapter 23 with, with the Pharisees? It says one thing is hypocrisy, that they don't practice what they preach. So they're saying one thing, but they're, leaving, they're living totally different lives. That's one of the problems they have. They're greedy. Okay, they're greedy, they love money, they're ripping people off, they're oppressing other people. He says that they're like whitewashed tombs, they look good on the outside, but on the inside they're corrupt. And um, he says that they're evangelistic, they're making disciples, but their disciples are even worse than they themselves are. So they're, they're, they're making, it's, they're magnifying the corruption that they have is getting worse as it goes on from generation to generation. And then the last thing he, he blasts them for is, he says, which we just read here, he says, he says they're focusing on the minor details of the law, but they are neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faith, or, or, or some, some, some translation will say faithfulness. He says, you're, you're majoring in the minors, and he, he explains it. He says, he uses very graphic language. He says, it's like you're straining out a gnat and you're swallowing a camel. Okay? That's like, I mean, is that a million times bigger than a gnat? I don't know. I don't know what it is. But he's saying, he's saying you're focused on these little tiny things, but you're missing the huge important things of the law of Moses. So Jesus' attitude wasn't that the law of Moses is a bad thing. His attitude is he's, he's, he's saying... You don't understand what the law of Moses is all about. It's not about, it's, it's not primarily about all these religious requirements. He says that's, that's part of the law, but the most important thing of the law is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So when Jesus looked at the law of Moses, that's what he saw. He saw that the towering things in the, book of, in the law of Moses were justice, mercy, mercy, faithfulness, what's in your heart, how you treat other people. That's what Jesus, that's how Jesus understood the law. You know, when they asked Jesus the question, uh, what are the greatest commandments in the law? How do you read it? He says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's these are the most, he said, all the rest of the law hangs on that. So when Jesus saw the law of Moses, that's how he saw it. He saw when he looked at the book of Leviticus, he saw towering in the book of Leviticus what it says in chapter 19 about how you behave and how you treat other people. Just one line in there is love your neighbor as yourself. But he's that's how he saw the law of Moses, and that's how he saw Leviticus, I believe. It's he said it's all about loving God and loving your neighbor. Everything is built around that. And he said, you need to make sure that you especially focus on the most important things of the law, but you don't neglect the smaller things. Now, one question I have is, how, how are people supposed to know? There are all these rules in the law of Moses. How is anybody supposed to know what the most important one is? It doesn't. I'm not sure that it says anywhere, this is the most important rule, and this is number two, and this isn't that terribly important. It's not like that. There are all these things in there. And I assume, it's like Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who meditates on the word of God day and night. 
So what does that mean? It means you got you got to think about it. You're, you're not just you're reading. It's not just you're practicing for Bible trivia where you have all you, you have all the facts down. But you're processing it, you're thinking about it, you're chewing it over, you're meditating, you're saying, okay, of all these commands here, what connects them together? What's the foundation of this? What's most important? What's God really looking for? That's meditating on the Word of God day and night. Uh, Let's turn to, to... Luke chapter 10. Starting in verse 25. It says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Okay, so so that's that's that, that, that not only is Jesus teaching this himself, but he's asking somebody who's another another Jew. He's he's questioning him. He says, Well, how do you read the law? What do you see that this is all about? How how would you answer the question? And that's what the guy says. He says, you're right, you got it. All you have to do, if you just do that, you'll live. If you really love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, you love your neighbors yourself, of course you're going to follow all the other rules. But that's the foundation of the whole thing. This is the foundation of the law. Everything hangs on that. And so when you think about the law of Moses, I encourage you to think about it as Jesus did. It's all about loving God and loving your neighbor and don't get lost in the small details of the whole thing, which is what the Pharisees did. Uh, And remember also, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in Matthew 5, Don't think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. So Jesus is not trashing the law of Moses. He said, I came to fulfill it. There are things, there are parts of it that have not that are not complete. They're imperfect. It's it's only it's like Paul uses the expression in Galatians, it's like a tutor with a child. It leads you part of the way to adulthood. It moves you in the right direction, but it's not the final goal. It's not the the, the perfection. In Isaiah chapter one. See, see, I see the same same exact idea in the Old Testament in Isaiah 1 about how do how should we see the law of Moses? Do we should we just see it as all these rules and regulations and sacrifices? Isaiah with the J or with the I? The I Isaiah, the one with the I in it. Okay, good question, Adam. So the one that starts with an I. How about that one? Okay, Isaiah chapter 1. It's a longer reading. But I, want to get, I want you to get the sense of, of how God feels about the people and, and what God considers to be important, most important, in the Levitical law. Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read the first 17 verses for starters. 
The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw against Judah and Jerusalem in the kingdom of, of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have begotten and brought up sons, but they rejected me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know me, and the people do not understand me. Alas, sinful nation, a people full of sins and evil seed, lawless children, they forsook the Lord. They provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. Why should you still be struck as you continue in lawlessness? The whole head is in pain, the whole heart in sadness. From the feet all the way to the top of the head, there's no soundness in them, only wounds and bruises and festering sores. They have not been closed or bandaged or soothed with ointment. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers take over your land and your presence, and it's made desolate, overthrown by foreign people. So the daughter of Zion is forsaken like a tent in a vineyard, like a hut in a garden of cucumbers, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and been made like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear of the law of your give ear to the law of your God, you people of Gomorrah. What is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Says the Lord. I am full of the burnt offerings of the rams and the fat of lambs. I do not desire the blood of bulls and he goats. When you come to appear before me, who required these things from your hand to tread who required these things your hand to tread my court although you should bring fine wheat flour it is vain incense is an abomination to me i cannot endure your new moons and sabbaths calling of assemblies fasting and holy days your new moons and feasts my soul hates you become a dissatisfaction to me. I will not forgive your sins. When you stretch forth your hands to me, I'll turn my eyes from you. Although you make many prayers, I will not listen to you. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Put away the evils from your soul before my eyes. Cease from your evils. Learn to do good. Seek judgment and redeem the wrong. Defend the orphan and justify the widow. And down to verse 21. How the faithful city of Zion has become a prostitute. It was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Your silver is worthless. Your tavern keepers mix wine with water. Your rulers are disobedient companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the orphans, nor do they regard the cause of the widow. So he goes on from here. So, how does God feel about the sacrifices of the people? You think about this, they're following the letter of the law with all the sacrifices. They're burning the incense, they're bringing the animals, they're sprinkling the blood, they're bringing the fine flour. They're doing all these things that it said in the book of Leviticus. They're honoring the festivals, they're gathering together on the special days. And God says, I hate these things. I am disgusted. I detest. This is an abomination to me. He said, this isn't what I'm looking for. Okay? The people thought that, that if, as long as they did, as long as they focused on these outward things, on these observances, that the corruption 
they could get away with it. God says, I am not going to listen to your prayers. And he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. That's God's attitude. God's attitude here we see in the Old Testament is they missed the point of the law. He says, the, the, the oxen knows its master, and the donkey knows its master's crib, but my people don't know me. They don't know who I am. They don't understand who I am and what I'm all about. God's, what God is looking for, it's the same thing that Jesus was, was addressing in Matthew 23. He's looking for them to follow the most important things of the law without neglecting the other things either. And they were abandoning those things. So he's saying, you know, where's justice? Where's mercy? Where's truth and honesty and generosity and helping the widow and the orphan? What's that? That's what I'm looking for without neglecting the other things. If, if the righteousness isn't there, I could care less about your outward religious observances. I mean, that's what Jesus is talking about. It says you neglected the weightier matters of the law. You should have practiced those first without neglecting the, the, the smaller things, the lesser things either. Uh, now this whole idea of the law and, and the idea that, that, we, that, that people are, are under law, this is a challenge for many Christians. Are we under any law at all? Different Christians will ask that question differently. Some will say, no, no, we're under grace now. We're, all the law has been done away with. And other Christians will say, well, no, the law of Moses we don't have to follow, but we're now following the law of Christ. And, and so, so what, is, what is the truth? Is there any law that we are under now? Let's turn, let's see what James has to say. James chapter 1. So rather than, rather than we're just getting in trouble by answering the question, I'm just going to step, step back and let James answer the question for us. Are we under any law right now? James chapter 1 and verse 21. James says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness, an overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself and goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. This one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So... James says, we are now under, how does he describe it here, uh, the perfect law of liberty. He doesn't say we're not under any law, we don't have to do anything. He says, no, you have, to, you, you have to obey and you have to continue in a walk of obedience. And it involves taking care of those who are in need. Pure and undefiled religion, visit the orphans and widows in their trouble and keep oneself from being unspotted by the world. Now, Christians will tend to gravitate towards one or the other. Some, some Christians say, let's go and just help the poor and, 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 and help, help those who are in need, but they're living very ungodly lives in terms of their, in terms of their sexual ethics 
and in terms of, of personal righteousness following the, te- the, the, the hard teachings of Jesus about purity. On the other hand, you've got Christians that focus on one, but don't show much love for others who are in great need. He says that this is the religion that God is looking for, which is the same thing in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, the same thing that God is looking for. So it's the perfect law of liberty that we are under. In chapter 2, in verse 8, he says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which of course is Leviticus 19, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin, and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble on one point is guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So it says you're going to be judged by the law of liberty. It's the perfect law of liberty. Part of that is how you treat other people. It says if you're you're discriminating for people, you treat the rich people and the powerful people, and people can help you one way, and that you, you treat another group of people another way, he says, that's not loving your neighbor as yourself. And he also says, if you're not showing mercy to other people, if you're unwilling to forgive other people who've sinned against you, he says, uh, judgment without mercy will be shown to the one who has no mercy. That's exactly what Jesus Jesus himself said. So, so the law, we are under a new law, a perfect law, a law of liberty. We're under a different law. And and you think about the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, he who does the will of my Father in heaven. He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What's going to happen to the lawless? Okay, Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. Now, we're not saved by the law of Moses, but, but there's the, the perfect law of liberty, the law of Christ. Uh, the whole structure of the Sermon on the Mount, first part of it, it says, well, Moses said this, but I say this. Well, in Deuteronomy 18, there's a very famous prophecy that's talked about in Acts chapter 3. Peter talks about it. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen talks about it. The prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 says, God told Moses on the, on the day that, that God descended on Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly, God had said, in the future I will raise up a prophet like you from among your brothers. And everyone must listen to him when he, when he comes. So the idea is that God gave the Ten Commandments, but he said there's more to come. There's, there's, this is the 11th commandment. Here's the Ten but in the future, I'm going to send a prophet like you. Well, what do you mean a prophet like Moses? Lots of prophets came after Moses. Isaiah, Jeremiah, there's all the, you know, the, the 12 minor prophets. God sent lots of prophets. Which, what do you mean a prophet like Moses? Well, Eusebius makes the point in proof of the gospel. He says, a prophet like Moses, think about it. And I had somebody over last night, I asked the question, said, 
what is the what is the one thing that was most different between Moses and every other prophet who came after him? And uh, the guy thought about it for a while, and he came up with the same answer that Eusebius had. He said the one th- difference between Moses and all the other prophets was Moses brought the law. All the other prophets just said, follow the law of Moses. Moses brought the law. So if God says, I'm going to send a prophet like you, what does that mean? He's going to be bringing new laws. He's going to be changing the laws of Moses. He's going to be, he's going to be bringing a law. That's what Jesus said. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. He's fulfilling. This is the missing piece and God would change things. He changed the dietary requirements. He changed. He changed the circumcision rules. So some some things he you know he changed the rules as far as marriage and divorce. He changed everything. But Jesus didn't didn't bring in an era of lawlessness. That's not what the grace of God is all about. Okay, he brought. He replaced it with the perfect law of liberty. So we can learn things from looking at the old law and how people dealt with it to appreciating how God wants us to live today under the perfect law that brings liberty that, that uh, James talks about. Uh, I see three problems, three challenges. You know, and, and Satan, Satan will try to get us every possible way he can. He'll try to get us to go off, go off the highway in the, in the left ditch. He'll try to get us to go off the highway in the right ditch or just get a head-on crash. doesn't matter. He's, he's going to try to find some way to mess us up. So here are some of the ways that I see with this whole idea of the, the, of the law, the perfect law of liberty that Satan tries to mess up. He, 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 teach, he teaches one group of Christians... He says, there's no more laws. There's no laws. You just live the way you want to, and the grace of God will cover it. But there are no laws under Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is full of some nice suggestions, but you don't actually have to do any of those things. Forget what Jesus says in Matthew 7 at the close of the Sermon on the Mount. it's, It's all unmerited favor. Jesus did it all for you. You don't actually have to obey anything he said. So that's the first group is the people who believe that there are no laws in, in, the, in, the Christian, in the Christian life. The second group says laws of God are good, but if laws are good, more laws are probably even better. Let's pile on some extra laws. These aren't good enough. Let's help God out here by coming up with more laws. Okay, This is not good. Uh, I was talking with somebody uh, last night who's from... Very different background uh, from from uh, the one that, the one that Alice and I came out of. Most of us in the room came out of, and uh, uh, and, and he's explaining. He said he said you know he said I've been running into people that go to churches that have all these written laws or standards that you've got to you know. And if you want to be a member of the church, you have to follow all these laws and standards. He said the, the church that we go to, he said they don't have any written laws and standards. He says they're all unwritten, and everybody knows what they are. But he says when you transgress those unwritten rules, you get dirty looks from everybody. People are judging you and looking down on you. So it's, it's just it's been, I mean, there's tremendous peer pressure. So, but you can there's many different ways that you can come up with laws. You can have written laws, or you can have just kind of understood laws that hey, this is just the way we do things around here, and anybody who transgresses 
you're going to peer pressure them to conform, to go along with that. Uh, I don't think that's very good either. And Jesus talked about if you're if you're 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 superseding the word of God with with the rules of men. This is this is worshiping God in vain. Matthew 15. So we don't want to do that. We don't want to be creating more more laws. I think there are plenty enough laws in the scriptures. If we do, if we follow those, we're going to be plenty busy uh, doing that. Okay, and then there's a third group, which I think for for those in the room, for my, my dear brothers and sisters in the room here, this is probably a greater danger for us than the first two. So let's I'll throw this this one out here. So there are all the laws that are there, but there can be a tendency to want to focus on certain laws and neglecting other laws. Now, maybe those are laws that we're really good at following. We'll focus on those, and those will become more important. Or maybe those are laws that nobody else is, hardly anybody else is following, but we are. So, therefore, in our minds, they become more important because that makes us look better, okay? So whatever, whatever, those, whatever the commands of Jesus are, whether it's evangelism or head covering or modest dress or whatever it is, okay, Jesus says you want to focus on the weightier matters of the law without neglecting anything, okay? So the question is, in the, law of, in the laws of Christ, what are the weightier matters? We got to think about that. What are the most important things? What are the what are the things that that just tower above all the other commands of Christ on which everything else is based? Certainly, I I, I think about that, and I, I encourage everyone in, in your study of the New Testament to ask yourself this question all the time: What's the most important command? I don't want to neglect anything. If I find a, a minor, a lesser command, or one that seems lesser to me, I don't want to neglect it. But what's the most important command? Because I especially want to focus on that. And I think about, uh, I think about what Jesus says: Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I think about what this is. The whole point that Paul's making in First First Corinthians thirteen. Let's turn there. First Corinthians 13, verse 1. Though I speak in the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I become a sounding gong, a sounding brass or a clang cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Though I have faith so I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So this is... Paul's saying, of all these things, the most important thing is love. Loving God and loving other people. Now, this is much harder. This is much harder than all those other commands to follow. This is the hardest one to follow. Jesus says, my command is to love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than he lays down his life for his friend. So this is... So we look at this. Look at the scriptures. We have to focus. Have to answer ourselves a question: Are we like, or are, are we going to? Can we have a tendency to become like the Pharisees to focus on the lesser parts of the law without appreciating the most important parts of the law? Because they did that with the Old Test, the Old Covenant. And if there's anything we should learn from their example, is let's not repeat the same stupid mistake. Okay, let's major in the majors. 
figure out as we're as we're following the commands of Jesus saying which are the most important one let's put the the most energy into those things but don't neglect anything else don't excuse ourselves from, from from the ones that we consider to be to be lesser ones uh, okay on to the burnt offering Leviticus <laughs> chapter 1 that's, that's a bit of an introduction there I told everybody uh, last lesson I was going to hit the first uh, ten chapters of Leviticus. That is not going to happen today, so <laughs> rest assured. <clears throat> okay, Leviticus, first six chapters of Leviticus talk about five different types of offerings, and there's stuff to learn about each of these, and I think they're su- surprising to me how much is hidden in there that is actually significant to us. So we're going to we're going to hit the first one of the burnt offering. This is the classic offering. The burnt offering is, you know, in, in, the, in the, the tabernacle, you have the holy place, the most holy place in the tabernacle. And then outside of that, you have the bronze altar of the burnt offering, and you have the laver where the people, where the, the priests would, would wash themselves. So you have, this is the bronze altar, not the golden altar of incense. This is the bronze altar where they burn up the animals, okay? So that, that's what we're talking about there. Uh, so let's read this, Leviticus chapter 1 in verse 1. And, and I, want, I want you to ask yourself some questions. What's being sacrificed? How do you do it? And uh, the other question is, what, do you, what happens to the blood? And, and, and uh, did the priests eat any of it or not? Because some, some of the sacrifices, the priests get a cut, and some of them they don't. All right. Leviticus chapter 1. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of testimony, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If a man among you should offer gifts to the Lord from the cattle, the oxen or the sheep, you shall offer your gifts. If his gifts should be a whole burnt offering from the oxen, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it at the door of the tabernacle of testimony is acceptable before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the young bull before the Lord and the priests. Aaron's son shall offer the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar by the doors of the tabernacle of testimony. He sh- then he shall skin the whole burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron and the priest, Aaron the priest, shall put fire on the altar and lay wood on the fire. Then the priest Aaron's son shall lay the parts, the head and the fat upon the wood and fire on the altar, but he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. The priest shall then put all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a sacrifice for a sweet aroma to the Lord. If his gift to the Lord should be from the sheep, from the lambs of the kids as a whole burnt offering, he shall offer a male without blemish, and put his hands on the head. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. The priest Aaron's son shall sprinkle his blood all around the altar. Then they shall cut it into its pieces with his head and its fat, and the priest shall lay them upon the wood in the fire of the altar. But he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water. Then the priest shall offer all of it and put it on the altar as a burnt offering, a sacrifice for a sweet aroma to the Lord. But if he should offer a gift to the Lord from the birds for a burnt offering, he shall offer his gift from the turtle doves or the young pigeons. 
The priest shall offer it on the altar, wring off its head, put it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. He shall remove the crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for the ashes. Then he shall split it at its wings, but shall not divide it. And the priest shall put it upon the wood. And the fire of the altar is a burnt offering, a sacrifice for a sweet aroma for the Lord. All right, so characteristics of this particular offering, the first of the five, it says uh, the entire animal is consumed by fire on the bronze altar. So they take the animal, cut it up, wash it, put all the parts on the altar, and then they make a wood fire, and the whole thing is completely burned up. So the priests don't eat anything. Uh, he says here, a male without blemish. That reminds me of the Passover lamb, male without blemish. It's, this is some of the some of the offerings can be either male or female. This is male only. When you get to the pigeons, I don't know how you tell the difference between a, a male and a female pigeon, but whatever. Uh, so it can be from among the oxen, the sheep, the goats, or even the doves and pigeons. So these are all domestic animals. So it doesn't say go out and catch a lion and, and, and sacrifice it. These are all animals that people own, their own animals. And the people are individually bringing this up, and they're offering it, and they're, they're the ones that are sacrificing it. They're the ones that are killing it. Uh, this offering is referred to in Hebrews chapter 10. This is the burnt offering. Let's, let's turn there. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. It says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then they would not have have ceased to have been offered. For the worshippers, once purified, would have had uh, no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. So he's saying that that, that there's a reason for these sacrifices. They couldn't take away sin. They're foreshadowing. There was something inadequate about them. The fact that they had to keep doing them over and over and over again means that they didn't complete the job. It's a reminder of sin. But it didn't take sin away. All this blood and all this sacrifice. He said, It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he says, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So he's saying that these offerings of animal bodies year after year, and he Quotes here from Psalm 39 is actually follows the Septuagint, not the not the uh, majority text here, where it says sacrifice and burn off as you that desire, but a body you have prepared for me. That's that's from the Septuagint, 
And then he goes on and says, right here in verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. So this was a foreshadowing. All these things were foreshadowing, all these offerings. It says in verse 6, burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. So burnt offering is the first one that's mentioned here where they burn up the whole, the whole animal. So in the word there, the, the word there in the New Testament and also in the Septuagint in the Old Testament is holocaust, believe it or not. Now what's what the word holocaust, when you think of holocaust, what do you think of? You think of the Jews, you know, uh, uh, the Jews who were killed in Nazi Germany. That's referred to as the holocaust. Well, that word comes from the whole burnt offering. I'm thinking, boy, how did they make that connection? That, that's, a, that's a kind of an odd connection. This is the whole burnt offering that's offered up to God and they, they will equate the they'll refer to the atrocity of killing all these these Jews by Hitler as the Holocaust. I, I don't get it, but that's that's where the word comes from. It's literally it's, it's Holocaust. So uh, so this is the first offering which is mentioned in 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 Hebrews ten. The, all these offerings were foreshadowing Christ. The second one is the grain offering. Go back to Leviticus. Okay, there are several references or allusions to this in the New Testament. And as we're reading this, you can ask yourselves, think about this, um, in the spare moments between words and, and, and during pauses as I'm, as I'm reading this, Ask yourself, is there anything in the New Testament that talks about or alludes to what we're reading here? The grain, this is the grain offering sometimes referred to as a cereal offering. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 1. Now, if a soul should offer a gift for a grain offering to the Lord, his gift shall be a fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, one of whom shall take it from uh, from it his handful of fine flour with oil and all the frankincense. Then the priest shall put it on the altar as a memorial, a sacrifice to a sweet aroma to the Lord. The rest of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is the most holy of the Lord's sacrifices. But if you should offer a gift as a grain offering baked in the oven, a gift of fine flour to the Lord, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. But if your gift should be a grain offering fried in a pan, it shall be a fine flour unleavened and mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It's a grain offering to the Lord. If your gift should be a grain offering from the grate, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. You shall offer the grain offering made of these things to the Lord. And when it's presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. Then the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and put it on the altar as a burnt offering for a sweet aroma of the Lord. But what is left of the grain offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It's most holy to the Lord's burnt. It is the most holy Lord's burnt offerings. No grain offering you offer to the Lord shall be made with leaven. 
For you shall burn no leaven or honey in any burnt offering to the Lord. As for a gift of first fruits, you shall offer them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a sweet aroma. Now every gift of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the Lord's covenant to be lacking from your grain offerings. With every gift you shall offer salt to the Lord your God. If you should offer a grain offering of your first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of your first fruits green heads of grain roasted on the fire, grain beaten from full heads for the Lord. Then you shall offer your grain offering of first fruits. Then you shall put oil on it and put frankincense on it. It's a grain offering. The priest shall then offer its memorial portion. It's beaten grain and oil with all the frankincense. It's a burnt offering to the Lord. So this is it's a type of burnt offering. So what gets burnt up? It's either flour, so ground up grains, or it's roasted grains, or it's grains that are made into like little cakes and baked in an oven, or it's fried, so I think like a pancake, right? So, so there's several different ways you can, you can do this. And does all of this get burned up, like the burn offering? No. Some of it goes to the priests, and they get to eat it. So they get, they get part of the offering they're retained, unlike the burnt offering. Uh, so, question I asked before, can you think of anywhere in the New Testament that talks about or alludes to this? And I can think of a few examples. I've had longer to think about it than, than, than uh, uh, anybody else here in the room. One is 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So think about the grain offering in connection with what Paul's saying. This is 1 Corinthians 9. First Corinthians 9, Paul talks about support, material support for those who are in the full-time ministry. Okay, we happen in our church, we don't need that. We can use our money for uh, for other things. We don't, we don't, we're not in a position where we need that. But Paul, and Paul supported himself at least when he's writing to the Corinthians as well, so you can do it either way. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. Am I, Paul says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my works in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit, who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That's from Deuteronomy 24. Is it oxen... I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 25. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, it is written that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope shall be partaker of hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, 
Is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we've not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So he's, he's using this example here from several of the offerings to say, he gives several reasons why to do this. He says, well, I mean, who, he, he just asked some rhetorical questions. He says, who goes to war supporting himself? Of course, the, the, he's supported by somebody if he's in the military. And it says, who who has a, 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 an orchard of fruit trees and doesn't eat the fruit? Who has a flock of animals and doesn't drink some of the milk from the flocks? It's, it's, just, it's just common sense. And then he says, and by the way, it says in the law of Moses, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out of the grain. Is God concerned about oxen? That's another rhetorical question. And then he says, don't you even know that in the temple service, those who serve at the altar take from the offerings of the altar. So that's the, he uses this as an illustration of this for giving material support for those who are in the full-time ministry. Uh, he makes a totally different application of the same, the same passage in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What he's talking about, he's talking about the problems of idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10, starting verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge, therefore, what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake the one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the Lord's table and the, and the table of demons. So that's... He's, he's using the illustration here of, he's going back to the imagery of the tabernacle and the temple saying, aren't those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? And he's saying that even under the old covenant, the people who were ministering at the altar ate from the sacrifices they ate from the table and he says we're eating from the table of the Lord in this case he's saying we're all like the priests who are ministering before the altar we're eating the spiritual food we're drinking the spiritual drink we are participating in the altar of God how can we be participating also in the altar of demons this is the idea that we're all members of a royal priesthood that's what Peter talked about that the, that the high priest is Christ and the priests who are ministering are like all of us. And so we, we are set apart. We can't be eating at the, at the, at the, uh, at the table of demons. And then uh, I think in, in Hebrews 13.
Verse 9, do not be carried away by various and strange doctrines. It's good that the heart be established by grace and not foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve at the tabernacle have no right to eat. He's saying, we, we, we're eating from the altar. We're like the priests back there. Uh, I'm going to close with one question here. One final final point, one final question. He makes a point of saying when you offer the grain offering, no leaven. You can't have any leaven with it. Of course, leaven throughout the New Testament represents sin, so the, I think the significance of that should be pretty obvious to us. He says also, no honey. Don't put any honey with it, but you must put something else on it. Salt. You have to salt it. All right? But you can't put honey on it. And, uh, you know, some people like sweet things. Some people like salty things. And, you know, salt shows up in the New Testament a few places. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Okay? If the salt loses its saltiness. So what's this business about salt? Why did they have to salt the, the grain offerings? What was the significance of that? Um, let's turn to Mark chapter 9. And you've you got to read from, uh, I think you'll, you'll be benefited by reading from a translation that's based on majority text or Texas Receptus in Mark 9 because there's a little line in there which, uh, which puts a little, a little sharper point on this here. Mark 9. <clears throat> Verse 47. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes be cast into hell fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now listen to this. This is from the New King James. For everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace with one another. What is that talking about? Have salt in yourselves. So, but he says, in, in, in the majority text says, every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. That's obviously a reference back to what we just read in Leviticus 2. Every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. So there's some spiritual significance for the salt that's in there. Now, so I'm thinking, you know, there's a lot of things you can say about salt. Uh I mean, we we use we have salt and pepper shaker shaker on the table, like I imagine most people do, and I put salt on it to make my food taste better. Okay, so I it's 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 a flavoring. That's what what I use it for. But salt in the ancient world had a lot of different significance to it. It was used as a flavoring for food, yes, but it was used for some other things too. It would, when a covenant was established, salt would be part of it. Salt was very expensive; it's extremely valuable in ancient times. So it, it talks about several places about a covenant of salt. The other thing that salt would do is salt is a preservative. Gals and I were out in uh, uh, California visiting my son, and 
he is a friend of his who grows vegetables in Northern California, and he makes this like a sauerkraut with vegetables. And so this very ancient way of preserving vegetables, so you just pile the vegetables on, and you put salt in there, and you let it ferment, okay? And it's a, a salting food is a way to preserve. People salt meat, they salt, you know, they salt pork, they salt all kinds of things. So it's a, a way of preserving things because a lot of bacteria that you don't like doesn't grow well on salt. Okay, that's just the way it is. Now, the other thing, you know the expression pouring salt on a wound? That's generally something you don't want to do. What, what, when somebody says you're just pouring salt on a wound, that means you're just making things worse. You're making it more painful than it was before. Now, why did people start pouring salt on wounds in the first place? Are they just trying to torture the other people? No. So they put salt on the wound because salt has a disinfecting property. Salt preserves food, and salt also has it has a, it kills bacteria. Bacteria don't like to grow in a salty environment. So it was used as a disinfectant, just like it would be used as a food preserve. The same idea. It prevents rot from happening. Okay? So, so Jesus, when he's talking about this, in which sense does he mean this? Is he talking about flavoring? Is he talking about preservative? Is he talking about, you know, what's he talking about when he says every sacrifice must be seasoned with salt? I'm going to give you a quote from Methodius, a, a bishop in uh, Lycia, which is in the southern Turkey, uh, not far from Antalya, who died around 311 AD. He's talking about this. This is from uh, Ananicene Fathers, volume 6, page 311. It's a work called The Banquet of the Ten Virgins. He said, For it must needs be that the soul which is not sprinkled with the words of Christ, as with salt, should stink and breed worms. That's rather graphic. As King David openly confessed with tears in the mountains and cried out, My wounds stink and are corrupt. That's from uh, uh, Septuagint, Psalm 37, which would be equivalent to Psalm 38 in other Bibles. Uh, because he had not salted himself with the exercises of self-control and so subdued his carnal appetites, but self-indulgently had yielded to them and became corrupted and adultery. And hence in Leviticus, every gift, unless it be seasoned with salt, is forbidden to be offered as an oblation to the Lord God. Now the whole spiritual meditation of the scriptures is given to us as salt, which stings in order to benefit, and which disinfects, without which it's impossible for a soul by means of reason to be brought to the Almighty. For you are the salt of the earth, said the Lord to the apostles. So this is the idea that the words of Christ and, and the words of us should be like salt. That it stings, meaning that the call to repentance and the call to leading a self-controlled life, it hurts, it stings. But it has the effect of saving our life and preventing the rot that follows. Uh, you know, you put honey, I learned, years ago I learned how to make bread, and so you'd start with the yeast and a little bit of water, and you, you put some honey or some sugar in there, and that activates the yeast, and start because the yeast loves uh, honey and sugar. So he says, no, no honey, no, no sweetener in there, salt only. You've got to have salt in the sacrifice. God's trying to teach us something. 
And I have a question for you. Do you want to be the honey of the world? Or do you want to be the salt of the world? Because that's what Jesus said. A lot of Christians, they want to be the honey of the world. They want everybody to like them. They want to be popular. But if you want to have an impact, you have to have this. You've got to bring the salt. So we'll close with that and pick it up uh, next time. Uh, can, can you